What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to This Moment, the transatlantic bridge connecting Stockholm, Sweden to Harlem, New York City. I'm Chef Marcus Samuelsson, one half of This Moment, alongside with Jason Timbuktu Diakate. As you know, our goal is to share BIPOC stories with all of you. And this week is no different. Talking to food writer, food entrepreneur, producer Stephen A. Satterfield, host of the incredible Netflix show High in the Hog, named after the book by legendary food historian Dr. Jessica B. Harris. This series explores black contribution to global food culture. Definitely a must-watch for anyone interested in learning about our history. We're also going to learn about Stephen's journey to get there, his path, how he carved it out, and how he created really a media empire. So, three, two, one. Here starts this moment with Stephen A. Satterfield. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Steven Satterfield, I think you know him the best by now by being the great host for High on the Hogs. But Steven has been on the field for a long time and started many incredible things and always been passionate about food, black food, and how we document it. Welcome to this moment, Steven. Thank you, Marcus. My pleasure. Appreciate you having me. So talk to me a little bit about storytelling and food when did this come into your life when did you decide that this is important and i want to be part of it and i want to be in the intersection of it yeah so i think that you know this the food component came early on um i'm i'm from atlanta and um you know my childhood was i think kind of typical for um a lot of black american kids of um a certain generation, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, culturally um, as a byproduct of, of the church. And so what that meant in my family, both on my mom and dad's side, um, was that every Sunday, you know, we, my whole family would um, convene at my granny's house, my granny, um, my mom's mom, and my dad would cook food for the congregation after church. Um, you know, after my granny passed, our household became 
um, kind of the, the new gathering place for family, extended family and so on. So it's always been, um, I've always had a relationship with food where first, you know, it wasn't a gendered relationship, which I, I think is super important. You know, the fact that my dad was the primary cook, I think really um, in hindsight was impactful. Um, and also I always had that association with food and convening, you know, um, like it never just being about the eating, but it was always an event, you know, when my dad was cooking. Um, I, so wait a minute, wait a minute, you cooked. So that must have started for grandma and your dad around Thursday, right? Just planning, what are we getting? And was it the same food every Sunday? I want to know what was on that menu. Yeah, you know, I mean, these are these are some of my earliest memories. But um, I can tell you for sure, like I remember in the summers, um, the name of the church was called Turner Road, the Church of Christ um, in Atlanta, Thomasville. And... Um, I would just, <laughs> I just remember like my dad just over like vats of oil, like cooking for hundreds of people, frying fish, um, frying hush puppies, um, serving like enormous <laughs> bowls of spaghetti um, and the like, you know, I mean, the garlic bread with the the parsley, the dry parsley, the whole thing, you know? Um, and then in my granny's house, yo, it's, it was just like a movie, like for real, like everyone's most, um, you know, whatever you imagine the the pinnacle of so-called soul food to yes, be, yes, yes. like that was <laughs> that was the table every Sunday. Um, so yeah, I I mean that was like super formative, you know. And then as I got older, um, in high school, uh, it was really the the onset of of the Food Network. Um, I was deeply influenced by that. Um, and even outside of that, like I, I started watching a lot of Jock Pippen and Julia Child in high school. Um, and then, um, you know, later on, I started to see it more as um, an emerging industry, but an emerging kind of cultural curiosity. And um, I remember watching Emerald. Honestly, I remember watching you. You know what I mean? I remember um, thinking to myself that food was going in a direction where it used to have like a negative class connotation um, into something that was more like culturally revered, honestly. And um, so I went to, by the time I was in high school or um, in college, uh, 2002, um, I went for one semester to University of Oregon and I didn't even make it to the second semester before I was in culinary school because I just knew um, that this world of culinary arts um, that was so emergent was like exactly where I wanted to be. Um, so I went to culinary school. I mean, I actually took a year off um, in between and then um, to work in, in restaurants. And then in 2004, um, went to culinary school in Portland. But then, but then also, I think you did something really interesting, becoming a psalm, which is kind of 
you have to study, you have to taste, but you also have to understand terroir. And Oregon is such a great place to do all those things. Why did you make that choice? Which I think is a fantastic choice. So the, honestly, that I became a sommelier at a very young age um, in Portland. It was an incredible opportunity. Um, you know, I was buying wine at this restaurant um, that was like 40 years old at the point called Genoa. I think there's probably like a, I'm not even lying. I think there's almost like a half a million dollar wine cellar. Like it's very, very, very old school restaurant. And so just crazy vintages, deep vintages, iconic winemakers. So my education was so fast and so um, formative um, that I really started to push myself in the industry, you know, um, around my colleagues, you know, um, testing, being in classes and so on. But I started just having this experience, which I, I'm sure you and many others, especially back then, can relate to, where we're the only ones in the room, right? And it's one thing in um, culinary school, but it's another thing completely you are basically dedicating your, your life to, you know? And um, you don't see yourself, like you don't see that space for yourself. And it wasn't even about overt things happening. Um, it was just that feeling of isolation, that feeling of like, I don't really see um, a future for myself in this community. And the one, I mean, y'all have seen the movie Psalm. I'm sure people have seen it. Um, the the part of that, which I felt was really well um, captured is like the, the kind of academic nature of, of that, like how intensely academic that pursuit is. And yet your classmates, right? The folks you're studying with, um, that particular fraternity, and it was very much that, it just wasn't my people. I just didn't, I didn't want it like that, but I didn't want to give up on wine because I, I love wine and I still do. It's still my greatest joy in life. Um, and so I ended up, you know, moving back to Atlanta. Um, I think I was like 23 or something like that. And I started um, just looking for other black people in the wine business. And I, I've, um, now mind you, this is like before social media, you know what I mean? So I was literally looking at magazines, um, which, you know, comes up later in the story. Um, but I remember reading um, about Andre Mack um, and I, who was really like, I mean, he's the big homie now, but he was really like a hero to me back then. Um, and then there was this woman named Selena Cuff, who I read about in Time Magazine, and she had started a company called Heritage Link Brands. This is in like 07, I think. And um, she was importing, she's a brilliant woman, Harvard MBA, a black woman who was importing wines from black owned wineries in South Africa, which if you know the history of South Africa and certainly the wine industry, black owned anything, it's like pause, you know what I mean? Um, and so I loved what she was doing 
and really wanted to um, work in a, a broader way of, of using wine as like a catalyst for economic development in South Africa. And the reason for that is, you know, I know this is like, the reason for that was basically um, the, the origins of the South African wine industry being colonized by the Dutch, um, exploiting African labor, exploiting black labor, um, bifurcating, segmenting that labor in such a way where you got some competency in the cellar, you got some competency in the vineyard, but never really, and very intentionally using this segmentation as a way to maintain power. And I remember um, I had this moment, like as a sommelier, I was like opening this bottle of South African wine for this, you know, older white couple. And, and I, I was really thinking about how absent this story of apartheid was in all of my um, kind of sommelier education. And yet we talk about the land, we talk, the whole thing is about terroir and there was no real analysis around the theft on the land or the exploitation. Um, and so I wanted to go work with black folks in Africa who were uh, working in a number of different capacities and I think post-apartheid wine reclamation projects, viticultural reclamation projects. Um, it was a beautiful time. Our nonprofit was called the International Society of Africans in Wine. It's a mouthful, but we called it ISAW, um, which is why all of my social handles to this day are ISAW Stephen. It's not just a clever um, thing. It's, it is related to that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that lasted for about three years um, but with this, with the I saw project, you know, we were making um, kind of short films about these winemakers, about um, the history of the South African wine industry. And that is really what I took from me, that period of learning how to distill really complex ideas, complex struggles, um, land-based struggles into beautiful and compelling um, storytelling. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I want to talk to you about High and the Hog. Tell me how did it come about? What, you know, the enormous amount of back and forth being in the muddle and coming back. How did you decide what stories? Because there's so many stories to share and tell. Give us, you know, break it down. Explain for us. Yes. Um, I mean, it was, it remains the most surreal experience of my life. I'm not sure what could be more surreal. Um, I was approached by um, Fabian Tobek and Karis Jagger, who are the executive producers of the show. Um, Fabian and Karis had um, got the rights to the book from Dr. J, who I'm sure was thinking like, yeah, good luck, you know, selling this. This book's been out for almost a decade. Um, but Fabian and Karis, they really did it. You know, they teamed up with Roger Ross Williams, who is uh, an extraordinarily talented um, documentary filmmaker. Um, and basically, they came to me and said, we, we think you're the person for this. Um, I felt somewhat uneasy. You know, I wanted to talk to Dr. J first to um, get that blessing. And um, we had a very long talk. And afterwards I felt, you know, comfortable um, stepping into this role. And yeah, we filmed it in 2019, the, in the old world. And I think, you know, in terms of the preparation, as you alluded to earlier, Dr. J, for many of us, was already. We have to we we have to explain for for those who don't know. We just have to give Dr. Jessica B. Harris yes. full name. Yes, extraordinary queen that has documented black food for forty years. Mm-hmm. You know, at least you know, mm-hmm. and she's just been serving up these incredible books of knowledge, whether it's been from Africa to America, whether it's been through from. Bahia to the Caribbean, you know, her books are just, uh, they're just incredible. Incredible. You know, informative. In, I mean, preeminent scholar, um, thorough researcher, font of information, culture keeper, like really 
our our matriarch, the matriarch of black food cannot if we call if we're calling her up right now, I would say she's either in Martha's Vineyard or in an apartment <laughs> in New York researching something Yo. for her next book. No question. And she's gonna say, Marcus, I only have four minutes <laughs> exactly. because I'm in the middle of researching, or call me back next Tuesday, Yo. 845 because I'm researching. All right, it's, click. It's really that it's deep. polite, it's firm, but don't go outside these boundaries because she's working and she's busy. She's busy. You know? She's busy. Yes. And I mean, like we have, as you said, four decades of scholarship um, as a result of it, you know, that's really impeccable. And so I, I was deeply influenced by her work, um, even going back to my, my days starting this nonprofit um, which is, you know, just short, a couple years after that is when High on the Hog was first released. And for me, I really, for the first time, started to um, see the potential for Black storytelling in food um, on a completely level playing field because she gave our food that energy, the same energy with that we were reading about with European travel logs and all, you know, history of pasta and the, did this, or the pizza, did it come from Rome? You know, and of course, like France is the center of the culinary universe for centuries, right? It, we got that same care with High on the Hog and I was just completely rearranged by, by the text. Um, and so obviously I think, you know, when, when I talk about food origins now, a lot of that is, a, is because of her, because I felt empowered reading about black American and really black diasporic food, because again, when in media, when, when your story is missing, from the larger cultural conversation, that omission is not incidental, right? There's a reason that that story is not there. And the reason is because your people are not the ones holding power in that society. I can guarantee you, right? And so the power of reading our story through the mind and perspective of Dr. J, it never left me. It really informed me moving from, um, you know, honestly working and going back and working as a Psalm in San Francisco, which I did for a few years um, into, no, I have to get back into this storytelling space because I know how important and how empowering and how powerful that can really be if I can be a vessel for that. Um, yeah, so that's like how I already had this relationship. I just want to set that context because like imagine whoever your own personal icon is in your world or your industry, like that's who Dr. J was for me. And so to, to not only share the screen, but to share in this retelling of this story, this cinematic retelling, um, and to be like by her side in Africa, in Benin, in a place that she's been going since the 70s, it it was just so overwhelming for me um, that the only preparation that I really could do for the series was just to practice 
mindfulness and the presence of mind to just be there with her and to be there um, for the the magnitude of of this experience and this work. And so that's just pretty much how I carried it the whole time. Was it, is it one episode? Because I'm sure it wasn't easy. It's a lot. It's emotional. You're there. You, you still got to shoot it. You got to do stuff. Was it one episode just production-wise that stood out for you that really touched you more than any other, like just, and, and why so? Um, I mean, there's, of course, moments in everything. Um, I, I think I think everyone kind of saw the most emotional moment of, of the series um, at the end of the first episode. And, um, you know, the reason that was the, the moment um, is because it wasn't, it really felt like it was our moment, right? Like we were actually having a moment, right? We're standing on a mass grave of our ancestors who didn't make it. I mean, it is so sobering the vibe already is just like, it's sobering. And, you know, I wasn't there by myself or even in a position that I, I sometimes, uh, and I know you too, find ourselves in where we are expected to lead. We are expected to sort of hold the line, be the orator, be the communicator, be the facilitator. I have to be that. I was just there in this moment with my idol who was holding space for the moment and who held me down in that moment so that I could do my job and do what I was called into this moment to do because the, you know, the scene before, like we had a take before that where I was like, I'm not sure if I can do this, you know? Um, and yeah, just like being held down by, you know, an icon, by my hero in that moment, in the context, on the continent, um, is something that I will absolutely never forget. And it's kind of a strange thing that um, that moment actually, you know, was shared so broadly. But um, well, thank you for sharing that I and mean, showing and showing vulnerability and realness because you really represented all of us in that moment. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I can. Um, I I don't know if I can take any kind of credit for that. I, I actually think that for most black folks standing in that same spot under the same conditions, I think you probably would have gotten a similar response. Like we had all of, I mean, it was a very black crew, the showrunner, the director, the producers, like everybody had a moment there, you know, when the cameras weren't rolling. Um, and so, yeah, as I said, I, I was in, 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 in the series, you know, just a vessel honestly, for her work and um, for our people really taking pride in understanding the, the breadth of our contributions in this industry. 
talk to me a little bit about the rice kingdom because yeah. rice is one thing that when you're on the continent especially in west africa that is so clear that it's such a major part of the culture but never unless you from the continent or understand it it doesn't get associated with africa in the mm -hmm. same way and that's what the rice kingdom says like no it's ours it came here and it talks about it so talk to me a little bit about that yeah um i love that episode i love i love that episode um the rice kingdom to me is deep because you know it's it, we really talk about it in a way that you understand that the wealth of the nation is tied to this right like that's how deep this is and so um while i think a lot of um people from the states don't know that history um i love that we were able to center that in the story and you know we see a lot of the derivative dishes of perlus and gumbos and so on um but I really appreciated, um, and especially like the work of, of BJ Dennis, um, that cultural context of the Gullah Geechee community as not only the, the bridge from Africa, but as the stewards of the culture and how BJ is centering that in his work today. Um, and, and more specifically, you know, Rice, is a an intensely difficult grain to farm. It is a cumbersome agricultural product. And part of the value was not only this particular strain of rice, the, Car the magical Carolina gold, which swept the whole world. It's also the particular acumen that black agrarians had to be able to cultivate this grain that you know the 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 landowners the enslavers the colonists etc they did not have that acumen so similar to the winemaking same, in south africa exactly the same thing right exactly the same thing and that's why i, I love that as my own personal origin story because once you start to see that relationship to the land, you start to see the exploitation of black labor. And when I say labor, I'm not just talking about our physical bodies because that's what always in, that's the perception, that's, yeah. that's furthering the racism that only understands the value of black people through our black bodies. And so that also includes things like sports, also includes like viral TikTok dances, right? That is such a small and racist and myopic look at the, the contributions of Black folks. Our contributions are also equally intellectual. And so it was our minds that were being mined just as much as our physical body. And that is why our people were stolen and captured from our homes and our homeland and brought to this country it was because of of our knowledge of how to cultivate this grain wow so steven 
I know only some of the food entered, you know, got on the show, but what did you and Dr. Jessica Harris and the crew really eat? I mean, what was the side road grub that didn't make it on the show? I mean, when we were, um, I think the most memorable meal was definitely um, at the the home of Rimwald Hazome, the artist. Um, He spent at least a week with his sisters, with um, other women in the village who were working hard to recreate uh, a meal that would have approximated uh, pre-colonial contact in West Africa. And so to be honest with you, like it was so vast (laughs) that I, I couldn't like, tell you exactly what each dish was but um what what i took away from that everything from the um plantains to uh you know the different layers and stages of fermentation and fish and grains is that our diets were have been can be so diverse in color, texture, flavor, technique. And even for me as someone who, and even um, actually, you know, Jarrell, who we um, shared this, this, this scene with, who herself is from Benin, yeah. right? But having these foods for the very first time. And she's also, you know, a professional food blogger uh, with a huge following one, like, and, and she's just like, wow, this is so, um, revelatory even for me. And so what I, what I just remember, um, is the both pride and humility of the moment of realizing, um, how much more I personally have to learn and also how aspirational, that table and that moment was as a as a way of moving towards a new future of what can be possible in a so-called decolonized diet, right? Um, and if not necessarily our traditional foods, and obviously, you know, a lot of these things took many days to make and prepare, but at the very least, the critical thinking around what we consume um, and really how much of our diets have been lost. And I think like what can be recaptured and reimagined is something that is, has really stuck with me and um, will manifest in our, in our work very soon. Wow. That's beautiful. That's really good. I knew it was funky. I knew it was delicious. Fermentation to a different level. Uh, I love it. I just think that What's amazing about your journey, it's super inspirational, right? Because there was a very traditional path for you. And even your ambition was, yeah, maybe I manage a hotel one day. But as you entered the space, you said, screw that. I'm going to double down, triple down. And the world opens up, not through these easy things that was given to you, but you actually have to create them yourself. And here you are. Uh, leading the most important food show on Netflix, which is so important because it's global. 
And I think you're such an example of just enter our space in food as a black foodie, as a chef, as a psalm, whatever it is. And you will find, I don't know what, is, what this person's going to find, but I know they're going to find something that speaks for them, right? And anytime they're in doubt, they should read a Jessica Harris book or they should listen to one of your podcasts or, or grab the magazine because you really show that it is possible. You just got to enter the space and see where this incredible landscape of food as a black chef, contributor, whatever it is, it's really for us, you know, and you're a prime example for that. I appreciate you, Marcus. Thank you so much. Special thanks to Steven for coming on the show. Now, go run, watch High on the Hog on Netflix. Let us know what you think about it. Follow us on This Moment Podcast on Instagram. Email us at thismomentpodcast at gmail.com with suggestions on who we should bring on the show or any comment. Tune in next week. I have some big news to share. Peace. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist-approved, so fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. The secret to summer ready skin is here. Osea's number one best selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.